Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What woke does is to reduce all of those identities to two essential ones. One is your ethnic identity and one is your gender identity to essentialize people on the basis of the piece of their identity that they have the least agency about is a problematic thing to do, it seems. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Woke, hasn't it become the most loaded, confused term? And does anyone actually know what it means now or what it was originally meant to mean before it got all weaponized and cancelled and toxic? If we sweep away the haters and the polarizers, the DeSantis's and the bolts, is it a good or a bad thing to be woke today? The word, the idea, actually originated in the black activist community decades ago. And it started out to mean staying alive to racial and social injustice. But somehow, at some point, it became a pejorative and became associated with the extremes of a privileged class of mostly white young people making confused, pious, I don't know, free speech claims on campuses. Then it became a weapon, a derailing device of the right to be lobbed at any action or statement that, well, they disagree with. So today you speak up for, or as a marginalised group, your legit points are not heard. Instead, you're accused of this new disease called woke mind virus, as Elon Musk likes to call it. So today, is it left or progressive to be woke? Should the left be trying to reclaim woke, albeit an original version of it? Or should we be aborting mission? I've been trying to find a way to address this quandary here in Wild for a while, in part so that we can tick it off and move on to better ways to talk about stuff. And so it happened, I stumbled upon Susan Nyman. Susan Nyman is a moral philosopher, director of the Einstein Forum in Germany. She has a doctorate in philosophy from Harvard, and she has taught at Yale and Tel Aviv universities. She's also been a member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, a research fellow at the Rockefeller Foundation Study Centre, a senior fellow of the American Council of Learned Societies. She's now a member of the Berlin Brandenburg Academy of Sciences and Humanities. It goes on. She's also written nine big, dense philosophical books about German guilt, the Enlightenment, the value of evil, and the infantilization of our culture, which we'll get to because I love her thesis. And lo and behold, she's just released a book titled Left is Not Woke. 
Now, Susan is a self-described lifelong leftist and socialist. She dropped out of high school to join the anti-Vietnam War movement. But in her new book, she argues that woke has become antithetical to the traditional values of the left. I figured she was my woman to cover off this hoary dialogue stalling topic for us all. Susan is a wonderful guest with a mind that can range back and forth from philosophy to tangibles. And we get to the bottom of where the left is going wrong more broadly. I know a lot of people, a lot of you out there are despairing that we don't seem to be finding a way to fix the bifurcation and the infighting going on everywhere. This conversation should help you understand it all. Okay, please meet Susan, who spoke to me from her study in Berlin, and I spoke to her from my friend Kay's front room in London. Susan, thank you so much for joining Wild. Hey, listen, why don't we start off with the origins of the term woke? I think people will be really interested to know that it it kind of first surfaced around about 80 years ago, didn't it? That's correct. The first recorded use of the word woke is by the great bluesman Lead Belly. And in that song, Lead Belly urged people to stay woke against discrimination. So that's, you know, who could have anything against that? I don't know. And what's really quite interesting, it it was a term, but it was mostly slang used by African-Americans and not all that often. What's really interesting to know is that in the 2016 American presidential campaign, the word did not turn up once. Is that right? Yeah, it's going to be, unfortunately, the main word that the Republicans use in 2024. And they use it, of course, as a slur and something horrible. Okay, we want to get rid of woke. Ron DeSantis, one of the presumable candidates, calls his state Florida the place where woke goes to die. Now, the interesting thing is when I first heard that term really used a lot, 2017, 2018, I thought it sounded like a good thing. And me too. That's right. And if what it meant was staying awake to injustice and keeping a watch out for people being marginalized and standing up when uh, you see an injustice being committed, I am all for that. But it's morphed in a very short time, something like five years, into what's, of course, not an official movement, right? But a way of looking at political questions that many of us who are coming from the left, who have spent their lifetimes involved with progressive movements, progressive causes, feel increasingly disturbed at. Not many of us speak up because we're afraid of giving aid and comfort to the right. That is, if we use, if we say anything negative about woke, we're afraid that we're going to be instrumentalized by Rishi Sunak or Ron DeSantis or whoever they are. Yeah. But, uh, I decided against warnings of some of my friends, I decided, no, I'm going to use the word because it really does capture something about our times and everybody recognizes it, even if they have a hard time defining it. Yeah. So the title of your book is Left is Not Woke, and it really is an attempt to separate what we now take to mean woke from left principles. It started out 
aligned, you know, this idea of being awake to injustices. And as you say, it has morphed in a very short period of time. Let's, before we go on, outline what you mean by the idea of being left, you know, being, I guess, on the progressive side of politics. Yes. I think to be left or liberal, you need to be committed to three principles. First of all, you believe that universalism is more important than tribalism. This was always a left-wing position. It was the right who thought that the only thing that really connects us are tribal bonds, and therefore the only people we have real obligations to are members of our tribe, and everybody else is okay, well, we may have to deal with them, but... They can fend for themselves. Correct. The second principle that connects progressives and people on the left is the idea that you can distinguish between justice and power. They're often hard to distinguish because Often injustices involve a power imbalance, but you believe that in principle, it's possible to make a distinction between claims to justice and fairness and demands for power. And the third thing that's essential to both liberals and leftists is the idea that progress is possible. Now, this is often, and that's, of course, where the term progressive comes from, it's often caricatured as the idea that progress is inevitable, and we know that that's not true. So you have many people woke feeling more feeling than actually believing that actually progress isn't possible. Now, of course, woke activists are moving towards progress. But if you don't recognize that progress has actually happened in the past, you won't be able to go making some more in the future. So those are three principles Mm. that are common both to liberals and leftists. And there's a fourth principle for those of us who call ourselves leftists, namely, you believe that in addition to political rights, like the right to vote or to travel or to worship, people also have social rights, workers' rights, rights to education. And all of those rights were codified in the 1948 UN Declaration on Human Rights, signed by almost all the countries at the time that were members of the UN, no country in the world has actually succeeded in establishing both political and social rights for all of their citizens. But if you're on the left, you believe that this is not a utopian ideal and you don't call things like workers' rights benefits or safety nets, which is what liberals call them. Yeah, got it. Okay, so that's a finer point that you make there. I mean, what's really interesting is you, you know, call yourself left, you know, from the left, even a socialist, and yet you've written a critique of woke, and that doesn't happen very often. It's generally the right that's just going hard at at wokeism. But I really want to pull apart some of the subtle points you make because what you're really saying is the left is not, in fact, woke, and and there needs to be a separation there. And I, I find that the tenant of your book is really wonderful for understanding what the hell happened. I think a lot of people listening are really confused by it all because it's like, who is woke and who owns it and who hates it the most? I mean, it seems now the left is really distancing themselves. And what I'm witnessing, and I know you saw this with your friends before you wrote the book, is a lot of people are sort of distancing themselves from being left-minded, from being a progressive, a liberal-minded person, because they're like, I don't want to be associated with all of this so-called woke behavior. So one of the things that you write in the book 
is that woke begins with a concern for marginalised persons and ends by reducing each to the prism of her marginalisation. What do you mean by that? So let's think about the words identity politics, okay? I have many problems with those words, but my biggest problem is what may seem, you know, it's so obvious that we forget to question it. We all have lots of identities, okay? And there are identities that change over time. Think about the change between having your primary identity be child and your primary identity, if you choose to have children yourself 30 years later, be parent. I mean, it's the thing that is most important to your sense of yourself, okay? And one can run through a whole bunch of identities. My guess is that all of us have a good, oh, somewhere between 12 to 15 that are really important to us. What woke does is to reduce all of those identities to two essential ones. One is your ethnic identity and one is your gender identity. And it's not an accident that those two are chosen, although honestly, they're they're very, even those don't pick out enough distinctions. I use the example of Chimamanda Adichie's beautiful novel, Americana, in which she talks so clearly about the great difference she experiences, somewhat autobiographical, being a Nigerian woman who then spends years studying in America and realizing how different it is to be Black in both places. But then, if you think a little more, also if you've read some of her other books, you realize that even being Nigerian Okay, is not clearly a category. The country has 500 languages and an extremely fraught history of people fighting and dispossessing each other. So what one thinks of from a woke perspective, even as a clear identity on the basis of ethnic background, is not. Okay. But so so why are we picking out those two identities? Mm as the two things that are most important about any human being. And I think the answer is, well, they are the easiest ones to recognize where marginalization or traumatization has taken place. But that leads to the problem that they're the two identities over which we have the least choice. True. Um, and the least agency. So what we're doing is reducing every human being to the things that they could not choose and cannot change. Of course, you can say trans is an interesting question, whether you can change, actually change your gender identity. But even if you can, there's a difference between what you were born as and what you later chose as a profession as a political position, whether you choose to have children or not, I mean, is a huge piece of your identity, but normally you choose it, okay, in this day and in an age of birth control. So to essentialize people on the basis of the piece of their identity that they have the least agency about is a problematic thing to do, it seems. And essentializing people in those way, ways used to be something that we thought we shouldn't do because mm. it's very productive. But apparently now it's, you know, it's called positionality. Well, it's really interesting. You brought up the trans issue. The trans 
issue, the, the noise around it, which in many ways is disproportionate to the number of people going through, you know, some kind of gender transition, really dominates the woke agenda or the, you know, it, it, it's it, the two Venn diagrams of wokeism and trans and the trans debate kind of cross over pretty closely. Why? Let me, let me uh, say one more thing just about that. Mm. Um, trans people always describe it as not a choice. I was born in the wrong body. So even though one can do various things to change the body one was born into, trans people in every case I've heard of, Mm. you know, also this is, I didn't choose this. This just happened to me. I was born essentially a woman or born essentially a man and, and somehow I got into the wrong body. So, so I'm just wondering, I'd really love your take on this. I think a lot of people are wondering why the trans debate has just got uh, so big and also so heated so fast. But it seems to have happened at the same time as this woke business has also escalated. Do you see that as a coincidence or not a coincidence? Are the two linked? Because it's a big focus of the, of the woke hoo-ha, isn't it? I know. And I actually decided not to discuss it at any length in my book, because the minute one brings it up, it be, it takes up all the air in the room. And I'm making some other controversial points. And I'd like to make them first and see if I can you know, persuade some people on that before jumping into what has really become a battleground that... A lot of people are willing, it's the hill that a lot of people are willing to die on, but I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that. It is a very much a lightning rod for all of this, but I think listeners can probably see why the two have, have sort of escalated at the same time. You know, it, it's it, when we, t- we talk about that idea of gender and race being the two things that identity has focused on, that woke identity has focused on. It's, you can, you can see the parallels going on there. I mean, and I think for, for people on the right, transgender people are scary because people on the right thought, well, the, the one fixed thing in our lives um, is our gender. And if you take that away, we have no more fixed, you know, poles to hold on to. Now, I happen to believe that we need to be able to live with a whole lot of uncertainty. So, and that that's part of being a grown up. But I, I am sympathetic for people on, uh, well, I'm not too sympathetic to people on the right, but, <laughs> but, I think that's what it comes down to in a world where people feel certain of nothing. They felt at least that was something, you know, you're born as a man or a woman and that's. um, Yeah. And now that's been thrown up, you know, like, don't we have anything to hold on to? Is there not a status quo that we can defend? Exactly. Anywhere there. Universalism is also something that you pick up on as a sort of a a, a definition of the way that the left operates. It's one fundamental principle. And you write in the book that the notion of an ally is the wrong concept to be in, in progressive struggles for justice. So you go back to the Nazi example of Hannah Arendt, the wonderful philosopher who sat through the Eichmann trials. and you know, she sort of argued that he should not have been indicted for crimes against the Jewish people. He should have been indicted for crimes against humanity. And you make the statement and she was right. Yes. 
it's it's an interesting one because you know woke obviously focuses so heavily on marginalized identities and and so on but i'm wondering you know for someone who has been marginalized you know whether they're jewish they're black they're an indigenous person they'd say that universalism is not a great inclusive concept for them so what do you say to that you know i, I want you to flesh out this this piece a little more with that example sure it's a very important part of of my argument look when anna arendt wrote that Jews were being marginalized to the point of being murdered, yeah? I mean, so she was not, and she was speaking as a Jewish woman whose life was saved by fleeing from Germany. So she is speaking from a marginalized point of view. And I should say that the Jewish tradition has two very distinct pieces, and they're both in the Bible. One says, you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and so it's your obligation, you know what it feels like, it's your obligation to look after the stranger in your midst. And the other strand in Jewish tradition is actually the same book of the Bible in Exodus, and it says, in every generation, somebody always wanted to kill us, so watch out for the stranger, all right? Mm. Uh, both of those ways of looking at the world are very deep in Jewish tradition, but also in many other traditions as well, okay? So it's by no means the case that every Black person is committed to the idea that, you know, you can only relate to Black people, you can only trust Black people, and you fundamentally are only fighting for Black people. I know plenty of people of color who see it very differently and, you know, certainly many Black people throughout history. I'm thinking at the moment of one of my heroes, Paul Robeson, who gave his last concert at the opening of the Sydney Opera House. Um, They're right. I didn't realize. Absolutely. absolutely. It's a brilliant clip. Three minutes. It's on YouTube. Google it. Everybody will enjoy it. I mean, everybody will be moved by it. I'll put the link in the notes. Yeah, great, because it's a concert um, for the workers who built the Sydney Opera House. You can see them sitting on the rafters. So, you know, there are in every tradition that I know of anyway, you know, every major world tradition also has a tradition of universalism as well as one of separatism. And it's it, it really does all go back to the Bible, basically. Do you feel because you've been mar marginalized that you have a special empathy and should pay special attention to other marginalized people? Or do you feel, eh, I've been marginalized, I'm scared of other people, okay? And I understand both psychologies. One is a psychology of hope, the other is a psychology of fear. And that's a choice, whether we decide to say, I'm going to stand in solidarity because I believe that injustice is injustice wherever it comes from and whomever it hits. And the reason I reject the idea of being an ally is allies are not about convictions or principles. Allies are about interests. So if I should happen to have the same interest as you for a while, we could form an alliance. But, you know, the great example is the United States and the Soviet Union when they were fighting Nazi Germany for a short period of time, their interests were aligned. And as soon as they weren't, they became enemies. Mm, game on. Yeah. So I don't want to be an ally. And I think dividing a movement for justice 
into the real bearers of the movement and the allies, it not only splits progressive movements in a way that I think is is dangerous, but it also suggests that the only reason why people stand up for injustice is because it's hurting them. It's against their interests. So the real people, I mean, in Let's just take one example. I, I mean, but you see, let me stop talking about racism and think about sexism, both of which are real systemic features of our societies. So if I if I say left is not woke, it's certainly not to deny that sexism and racism are real problems. But I know women who say, well, feminism should be a woman's movement. Men can be good allies or not allies. And that suggests, again, that you're only standing up as a woman for your own interests, your own lack of power. And, you know, you might trust some men to think that women should be given more power. But you're not thinking of the idea that it's fundamentally ridiculous to divide power, wealth, privileges, all of that because people have one set of genitals rather than another. I mean, that just is not the basis on which we should divide things. And that's, you know, that's a universalist notion of feminism. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, okay. So we can see that the woke movement, not that we can really point to a woke movement anymore, but it, it did focus on the opposite of that, right? It was about allies, the Black Lives Matter, you know, movement. And what it does is set up for, I guess, it, it makes it very easy to critique and tear down, right? It leaves it wide open for the right to come in and do hashtag, you know, all lives matter. And then the debate gets hijacked into this messy clusterfuck of goings backwards and forwards on linguistics and, and so on. Your argument is is to sort of adhere to left fundamentals and go universal, that, you know, humanity matters. We should be fighting for basic human principles rather than getting bogged down in these separatist ideas. Absolutely. But let me clarify something about the all lives matter. All lives matter was a tricky and insidious slogan because, of course, all lives matter. But those people who were shouting all lives matter were substituting a banal truth 
for an empirical one, namely more black people die in police violence than others. And, you know, it's it's perfectly possible and I think was extremely important to have this gigantic global movement for a while, Black Lives Matter, because they are the ones at the moment who are the most at risk. And Black Lives Matter started out as a universalist movement. More than half of the people who were on the streets were white or identified as white. And we forget there was an international plague going on at the time. I mean, people were taking risks to go out onto the street. And more than half of them did it not because they felt their interests were directly affected, but because they were appalled by the video of George Floyd and the news about other people who were similarly treated. So I think it began as a universalist movement and then both the right and the woke started fighting over. Clusterfuck is not a bad word to describe what happened. Yeah, interesting. I I wouldn't mind actually backtracking at this stage because in Australia, for, for Australian listeners, for British listeners, we didn't have that sort of summer of 2020 that the US had where all of this, I think, really imploded. I hear it referenced many times over when people talk about when woke did this sort of weird inflection. Is that a moment that you think really sort of defined when things started to get very skewed? Well, first of all, the summer of 2020 was certainly felt and noticed in Britain. And I know that Australia had pretty pretty heavy-duty COVID um, shutdowns, yeah. Shutdowns. So so I, I can't speak about Australia but there were a lot of demonstrations in Britain. There were people throwing statues into harbor. Well, one statue into a harbor in Bristol, but people also spray painting others. That happened in Belgium. That happened in Holland. It happened in Berlin. So it wasn't only an American moment, though it was triggered by events in the U.S. And boy, I have to tell you, in June 2020, I really was very hopeful, like many other people, because it seemed to me, again, you had American cops kneeling in the streets. I mean, you had U.S. Army veterans wearing Black Lives Matter, white Army veterans wearing Black Lives Matter T-shirts and protecting demonstrators in Portland, Oregon. So it, it really did seem like an absolutely massive uprising that was for the most part nonviolent. Nobody got killed. There was some attack. There were some attacks on property. But, you know, in demonstrations where millions of people were involved, uh, a little bit of attack on a building or so is really not. Yeah. You know, but not then- really so it seemed people were standing up for these universal principles of justice. And then stuff went wrong. Well, Sorry, what I went didn't... wrong? What went wrong? Yeah. Like that's, I think, what we're all trying to work out because also there was a bunch of things that also happened in that summer in the US. There was a bunch of, I think, can- there were museum workers who were cancelled for saying things. Prominent people started to get cancelled for speaking out on trans stuff, whatever it might have been. It all started to build momentum. And I don't know whether it's just that it happened to coincide with the Black Lives Matter stuff or 
yeah, or whether one led to, to another and and that's where the clusterfuck sort of started to happen. What are your thoughts on that? What what actually turned? Yeah, so what I don't know is which happened first, but I think as soon as the right began to see this as a question of identity politics, and they were very uh, strong and nasty, remember also, who was president of the United States at the time. Mm. So, you know, you had a hard pushdown by the right. I, I mean, the former president of the United States wanted, uh, you know, People wanted the army to shoot demonstrators at a certain point, okay? So it was pretty drastic. And there were some burning of buildings, particularly in in Portland, Oregon. I've met people. Those were played up. If you watched Fox News, you would think that, uh, you know, the country as a whole was burning. And, of course, you know, they had a reason for playing that up. And of course, let's not forget who was president of the United Kingdom at the time. I mean, we we were and to some extent are in the hands of politicians who love to instrumentalize every bit of, you know, even violence towards property into saying, oh, my God, the world's falling apart. Yeah. Let's come back. So so the right pushed back, seeing it as an instance of Black identity politics. And at that point, the people who are leading Black Lives Matter also pushed back and saw it as a matter of left identity politics. And at that point, I know, because I remember very clearly, I was talking to a friend of mine, we were thinking about writing something similar, old lefty Todd Gitlin, who unfortunately died last year. At that point, we said, What's going on? What, you know, what is getting confused here? And again, I I began having conversations at that point, sort of September 2020, with friends who felt confused, as I did. What's getting what's getting mixed here? Why do we feel that the woke's heart is in the right place, but their head has gone off somewhere? And I spent a couple of years with people who were saying, gosh, I guess I'm not left anymore if this is what the left is doing. And I was trying to disentangle that. And that became this book, Left Is Not Woke, which I thought, well, I wrote partly to help myself understand this confusion. And I hope it will help other people. So what did you find? And maybe I can prompt you a little bit because you write in the book about language, you know, because so much of this mess is sort of around cancelling, free speech, pronouns. There's a lot that is based around language. And you write the emphasis on policing language really is born out of despair, the sense that, well, we can't make any changes in the real world, but at least we can change our language. Do you feel that that sort of sense of despair and uncertainty that was happening from all angles had a part to play in this. And so we micro-focused on identity politics, language, you know, these sort of minutiae, you know, we sort of got really granular and then it just sort of imploded from there. Is that partially to explain what happened or or was there something else that you found? No, no, I think that you've just put it extremely well. 
let's remember, I try not to be too America-centric, and I have actually lived most of my adult life outside of the U.S., but it is the most powerful country in the world. It affects a lot of people's, you know, well, not just their ways of looking at the world, but their politics. Let's imagine in 2016 that instead of Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders had become president of the United States. The world would feel different. We would, you know, people like Johnson and Modi and Netanyahu and Putin and Bolsonaro would not have had the support that they have had for, oh, well, the American president does it. I guess I can get away with it, too. I mean, this sort of terrible combination of, you know, tribalism and interest in power, money, and nothing else whatsoever, okay? Yeah. And, you know, I think particularly for younger people, you know, to look at the world right now, basically they've seen it going from, okay, a little precarious, but okay, to just downhill. And I think this, I mean, or, or look back to 2011 with Occupy Wall Street, which was also a progressive movement that had, you know, that influenced certainly conversations across the world. And I don't just mean on the streets. I mean, at Davos, you know, I mean, there were, they've been worried since Occupy Wall Street. So just imagine that if things had gone in that direction, people would be arguing much less about pronouns and thinking more about what else they could yeah. change. It very much fits with that distraction mechanism that we're all talking about. Distraction now is an incredible weapon. You know, it's the, the Romans and their bread and, you know, circuses. We now have, you know, these, this infighting around wokeism. So, Susan, what is the real danger of the left being caught up in woke? You, you sort of present a couple of ideas as to why there is a problem there. We are, and when I say we, I do mean the whole world. We are under threat of something that's sometimes called anti-democratic or authoritarian movements and forces. Let's not mince words. There are governments that are either being run by or under threat of being run by fascists. And by that, I mean the government of India. By that, I mean the government of Israel. We dodged a bullet in the fall when Bolsonaro was kicked out. But there's still plenty of people who support him, as there are plenty of people who support Donald Trump in the United States. At the moment, he, according to the polls, he would win in an election against Biden. All right. So we're talking about people who have used violence to undermine and even kill people they perceive as enemies to overthrow democratic elections, all of that. Those are rising dangers in the world. And if the left focus its, its attention on, let's say, arguments about pronouns or, you know, other kind of fairly minor questions in the scheme of things in the world, we will be repeating exactly the same mistake that the German left made in 1933. The Nazis did not win a majority in a democratic election until they came to power and got rid of democratic forces, other parties that they didn't like, media, et cetera, et cetera. Then they were getting majorities. But before January 1933, the majority of the country was left. Okay, social democrat or communist, and they tore each other up. And there were real 
issues. I mean, it's not it's not that the issues between them are trivial, but they were unable to see what the alternative was. Um, they were infighting. They were infighting and they got distracted and they weren't present as a force to combat right. Hitler. Definitely. And you've said that Hitler wouldn't have won if the left had got their act together and, and united. That's exactly right. Mm, interesting. I can see what you're saying there. I mean, I feel that the broad issue is that the left so often loses this kind of woke battle that's happening, right? Like it's a race to the bottom that's happening between the left and the right and on, on, on all of this and, you know, on race, on gender, a whole range of things. And the left is not great at winning this particular race to the bottom. You know, progressive ideas get compromised and weaponized. So how can the left find its footing again? What does the left need to be doing right now to ensure that this race to the bottom doesn't continue? And in, I've got to highlight, Australia is a bit of an anomaly. We've voted in a left government yeah, yes, and glad. the debate has got very reasonable again. And in fact, the right woke kind of, you know, bullshit that goes on, it kind of gets ignored. It sort of pops up it sounds ridiculous and we actually move on. I mean, we've got right-wing media still doing its thing um, with a very heavy Murdoch influence, but by and large the Australian people have called bullshit on all of this. So in many ways Australia is an anomaly, but what does the rest of the world need to be doing and debate more broadly because that is still an issue in Australia as well? Well, then let Australians lead the way as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't follow the news there very carefully. I know you voted in... Um, progressive government recently, but I, I don't follow the discussions as well as I do in, in other places. Look, I read this book to as a quite simple, easy to read book that lays out what I believe are the essential questions that the left should unite around. Okay. Uh, What's this book a, called? <laughs> left is not work. That's a pretty oh. broad tent, you know, by which I mean, you know, from, you know, centrist liberals to all the way over on the genuine left. And I'm also willing to welcome some pretty middle of the road conservatives even who can intelligently um, discuss these views and basically ad adhere to these principles in the old-fashioned sense of the word liberal, okay? So it's a pretty broad tent that we have to unite around. And, I, you know, I think, I think the most important thing after, as I hope I've done, laying out some basic principles that we we need to take seriously again. And by the way, I do talk some philosophy in this book, but I don't imply that everybody who's woke has read Michel Foucault, say. But ideas like Foucault's, like the Nazi Carl Schmitt, have gotten into mainstream media all over the world. And whether or not we've actually read them, we imbibe them. They're in the water supply, okay? So we don't even realize how much we're taking certain philosophical assumptions for granted, we just repeat them and the media repeats them. So, you know, this book is written by a philosopher who's trying to straighten out what ideas are actually guiding the woke, even where they may not realize it and affecting us and confusing us. But then also to say progressive people need to keep their eye on the ball. Human life on earth is threatened by two things. One is the climate catastrophe. 
I'm not a climate scientist, but so I don't I don't need to explain why that threatens life on Earth. What I can say for certain sure is that it will never be solved if we continue to act in tribalist nationalist ways. This is a moment our real hope right now is that people will recognize the severity of the climate crisis and realize it can only be solved if we act as universalists. And, you know, the rising tides of fascism or proto-fascism work absolutely against our being able to solve those problems. And I think people are setting an alarm. Yeah, I think that the same can be applied to AI and the existential risk that has been highlighted there because a lot of the debate in terms of being able to rectify things and find a way to ensure that it doesn't run out of control is about coming back to the idea of broad human principles of what makes us human, what distinguishes us from from AI, from a bunch of bots, you know, and it is a whole bunch of universalist principles, the stuff that makes us united as humanity. The debate is swinging back in this direction. There's a whole range of kind of pendulum swings happening in the meantime, you know, lots of left-leaning women in particular in in journalism who have been cancelled and are now working for what are fairly relatively right-wing publications. And there's this kind of progressive right that's emerging, which is really interesting. It could be still a helpful space, right, to to rectify some of these things. But it's I think the pendulum's got a few swings backwards and forwards, and I think many of the points that you raise are going to get us alert to how far we've become. So are going to get us alert to how distracted we've become. And that I think is a really salient point. What I really want to wind things up with here is, and I feel it's relevant, you wrote a book a number of years ago called Why Grow Up. Mm-hmm. And you know, as the title suggests, it's really about how, you know, society has become quite infantilized and 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 we sort of behave like a bunch of silly teenagers and we need to become adults. And I totally agree with that thesis. It's been something I've been applying to the climate crisis on a number of occasions. But do you feel that the fact that we're so bogged down in polarised debate is something of a result of this infantilization of our culture? The, the world needs to solve big issues and we're screaming woke at each other like kids in the playground. Is that part of all of this? I do think it's part of that. And let me just say one or two sentences about that book. We tend to think of the, you know, injunction, well, it's time to grow up as as a matter of resignation, as a matter of, you know, okay, accept the way the world is and don't think you can change it and all of that, which is part of why we wrongly idealize uh, the time of youth, it's really the hardest time in people's lives from about 18 to 28. People are normally miserable, but they're told it's the best time of their lives. In Why Grow Up, I really try very hard to recast adulthood as something that's not a matter of resignation, but that something is actually to strive for, because it is about seeing the balance between the way the world is and the way the world should be and learning how to navigate that, which I think is the task of every adult, and we're working at it. So yes, I think it's time for us to grow up, but I look at that as a challenge and a chance, not as a matter of defeatism. A a rally call, a rally call to get truly alive and awake to what's going on, which 
segues it all beautifully back to to getting alive to what is happening with this woke debate. Hey, Susan, I realise I've taken up a fair bit of your time, but I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We went off in a bunch of different directions, but it was wholly nutritious and nourishing. And I encourage everyone to get a hold of your book. It's out very much recently. It's come out just in the last month or so. It's called Left is Woke. I'll put the, the details in the show woke. notes. Left is, Left not, is woke. not woke. Oh my goodness. Let's get that right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You enjoy the rest of your day, Susan. Thanks so much. Pleasure to talk to you, Sarah. Thank you. I don't think there's much to add to that chat. I mean, well, there's a whole lot, right, but I won't do it here. It was a bit of an academic work around the issue, but I've got to say it helped me understand and piece out the confusion that I'm feeling around the topic and to see the real call to arms going on. And that is, as always, that we we need to be paying attention and we need to not get distracted by the infighting. So much of what is holding progress back is distraction, you know, over and over again, distraction. I also add one point. I mentioned this phenomenon of these left voices moving to centrist and right positionings and publications, and it's been happening in the last, I guess, six to 12 months. It was interesting. Last night, I was at a dinner party here in London, and it was the topic of conversation how a number of older British feminist writers have been cancelled recently by their left-wing publications and are now writing for right-wing publications. I'm also seeing the same thing happen on Substack and I wrote a post listing some of these voices a few weeks back and I'll put that link in the show notes. I find it all fascinating. I'm not alarmed by it, I've got to say, because as I said to Susan, the pendulum is swinging and it's going backwards and forwards at the moment and finding what I think will turn out to be a better spot, a balanced spot, or at least I hope so. Okay, keep alive, keep awake and not necessarily woke. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15 off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details